Peter has encouraged his readers to remain faithful while scattered and suffering because they have a living hope. He has exhorted them to be prepared, obedient, holy, and loving of one another so that they would not yield to the pressures to compromise with the surrounding pagan culture. Without a doubt, as believers, we face many pressures. Pressures such as being scattered and or suffering. And such pressure can cause our priorities to God to take a back seat. Thus, Peter reminds us that as newborn babies and living stones, we must pursue our priorities, even under pressures. We have a priority to feed on God's Word, sacrifice to God, and proclaim His praises. As we examine 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we're going to note that we can pursue priorities under pressures by first feeding on God's Word as newborn babies in verses 1 through 3, and then secondly, by sacrificing and praising God as living stones in verses 4 through 10. So let's begin with verses 1 through 3. Pursuing priorities under pressure, number one, by feeding on God's Word as newborn babies, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The word therefore connects this text with the previous regarding the command to love one another. We are to love one another, and as such, we are to be daily putting aside those attitudes and actions which undermine our love for one another. The verb putting aside here means to lie down, to be done with, or to renounce. It pictures someone daily removing their old stained clothes and throwing them away. Paul uses the same metaphor in Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. He uses it again in Colossians 3.8. Put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. These five attitudes and actions are to be renounced by those of us who possess the Word of God. Additionally, each attitude and action is enjoined by the term all. All is exhaustive, and it leaves no room for deviation. That is, you and I as believers are to renounce every aspect of these five attitudes and actions. We are not to fight against these attitudes and actions, but instead remove and rid ourselves of them. First, we must renounce all malice. All malice. Malice includes all types of evil and immorality. It is a desire to inflict pain on someone or injure someone. And such ill will obviously destroys the harmony that exists amongst believers. Second, we are to renounce all deceit. Deceit refers to falsehood, fraud, deception, and trickery. Third, we are to renounce all hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is pretending to be something or someone other than what we are. This is exactly what Jesus accused the Pharisees of, hypocrisy. 
They honored the Lord with their lips, but in their hearts they despised him. Matthew 15, 7 and 8. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Fourth, we are to renounce all envy. Envy refers to jealousy or spite upon hearing of another's prosperity. Envy often ends in a grudge against another person. And fifth, we are to renounce all slander. Slander is speech that degrades or tears down another person. And so believers, we need to take these things off and throw them away. We need to renounce them and we need to remove them. Is there any malice in your, in, in your, in your talk, in your walk? You know, are you have a desire to inflict pain or injury on someone? Uh, how about deceit? Any falsehood, fraud, deception, or trickery on your part against someone else needs to be renounced and denounced. Uh, how about hypocrisy? You're putting on an act, you're acting like something or someone that you're not, you got to put it off, you got to get rid of it. Are you jealous of someone else? You got to get rid of that, you got to renounce it. And how about your speech? Is your speech degrading or tearing down another person, or is it building them up? If it's tearing them down, it's got to be renounced. It's got to be removed. See, these attitudes and actions are to be replaced with a desire for God's Word. And this is where Peter depicts us as newborn babies. Newborn babies need physical milk for physical growth. And accordingly, believers need the spiritual milk of God's Word for spiritual growth. And Peter says here that the milk of God's Word is pure. That the Word is pure indicates that God's Word is guileless and genuine. Interestingly, this term pure is the antonym to the term deceit that was used back in verse 1. So we're to get rid of deceit and to replace that deceit and it's the other four attitudes and actions that go with deceit with the pure, the genuine, the guileless Word of God. You see, God's Word and deceit cannot dwell within the same individual no more than the same fountain can produce salt water or, and fresh water, as James 3.11 tells us. Notice it says that newborn babes long for. The term long for means to crave for or deeply desire something. Now this term long for comes from the Greek word uh, epithotheo and it uh, translates the Hebrew term seme, seme. Now that's important because when we go to Psalm 41 verse 2, it says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. The word pants there uh, in, of the deer or of our soul Panting after God is that word long for. Okay? It's that Hebrew word, uh, same, or that Greek word, epipotheo. Uh, we see it again in Psalm 83, verse 2. My soul longed. There it is in the Hebrew, same, or in the Greek, epipotheo. And even yearn for the courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Thus, long for depicts a passionate desire that you and I are to have for God and His Word. Quoting Psalm 34, verse 8, 
Peter states that this craving for God's word is based on the fact that they have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, look back here at 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, and it says, beginning uh, here in uh, verse 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness or goodness of the Lord. And to verse 3. So here he, here he, Peter is quoting Psalm 34, verse 8. He uses the term curios here when he says, taste and see that the Lord is a good or the Lord's kindness to translate the term Lord or Yahweh in Psalm 34 and verse 8. And as we've seen previously in the New Testament, curios was used to recognize Jesus' deity. As uh, Thomas pointed out in John chapter 20 and verse 28, my Lord, my curios, and my God. So by translating Yahweh as curios, Peter was equating Jesus and Yahweh as equal. Now, as an aside here, Psalm 34 appears to be significant to Peter as he quotes from it or alludes to it often in his epistle. For example, Psalm 34, verse 1, I will bless the Lord. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 5, part A, they looked, literally, draw near to him and were radiant. 1 Peter 2, 4, and coming to him. I'll comment on that one in just a moment. Psalm 34, 5, part B, their face will never be ashamed. 1 Peter 4, 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Psalm 34, verse 8, Taste and see the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 1 Peter 2, 3, If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 9 and 11, Fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 1 Peter 1, 17, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. 1 Peter 2, 17, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And then Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16, Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers. That exact quote from verses 12 through 16 of Psalm 34 is repeated word for word in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As to why Psalm 34 is so important, I think contextually Psalm 34 is a reminder to believers who are suffering that God will deliver them from all their troubles. Verse 22 of Psalm 34, The Lord redeems the soul of His servants, and none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Certainly such a psalm is a great encouragement for Peter's readers as well as for you and I today. Now coming back to the text of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, the phrase, If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, is a first-class conditional statement that assumes the statement to be true. As such, the if, if you have tasted, can be translated as sense. The term taste it means to feel, make trial of, or experience. 
And the kindness here refers to the grace of the Lord experienced at salvation. Thus we can render the phrase, since these believers had previously experienced the grace of the Lord at salvation. See, since we have experienced saving grace, we should have a deep desire for God's word. A lack of yearning for spiritual milk is a sign of malnourishment. And sadly today, many believers, perhaps even some listening, have no appetite for God's Word. Instead, they crave religious entertainment, but no actual study or exposition of God's Word, and as such are stunted in their spiritual growth. Thomas R. Schreiner states, Christian growth for Peter is not a mere call to duty or an alien moralism. The desire to grow springs from an experience with the Lord's kindness, an experience that leaves believers desiring more. And so I ask, are you experiencing a desire to know more of God's Word? And if not, why not? Is it because you're malnourished? Is it because you've been so long without feeding on the milk and even the meat of God's Word that you've forgotten what it tastes like? That you have forgotten that you need it? Are you malnourished, Christian? Or worse, do you have no desire because you've never been a newborn babe of the Lord's? See, the goal of feeding on God's Word is so that we may grow in respect to salvation. That word grow means to advance into maturity. In respect to, that's a preposition of direction, literally, that we can advance in maturity unto something, and that something here is salvation. And Peter uses that in the same context as chapter 1, what we call eschatological salvation. Hence, the goal of feeding on God's Word, is advancing, maturing, growing towards the full benefits of our salvation. Now, as you and I grow, we need to move from milk to the meat of God's Word. Sadly, many believers, perhaps even some listening, are still stuck on a diet of milk when they should be eating solid food. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. For by though this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracle of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Paul explains in Hebrews that by this point in their Christian life, his readers should be teaching theology, theology on some level. Now indeed, not every believer has the gift of teaching. But every child of God, every born-again believer, should be able to teach another person to the degree of the knowledge they have received. Okay? He's not asking you here to be, you know gifted as a teacher. He's simply asking you to take what you have learned and pass it on 
to someone else. Such teaching could be one-on-one. But instead of being teachers, Paul says his readers need to relearn the elementary principles of God's Word, the milk. They need to go back to milk. See, when a Christian, when we do not continue to progress in the Word of Righteousness, we are going to regress and our spiritual abilities and appetites are going to become dull. See, the metaphor of milk here refers to the elementary principles of the faith. Solid food or meat is a metaphor for the substantial teachings of God's Word. These these believers here in Hebrews 5 had regressed so far that they could no longer digest or discuss theological matters from the Word of God. As such, they were acting like babies who don't know the difference between good and evil. Now, let me break down here for you a comparison between the spiritually mature and the spiritually immature. First, the spiritually mature person develops an understanding of biblical truth. A spiritually immature person struggles with the basics of biblical truth. Now, I'm not going to ask the question each time as I go through this list here, but I'll ask it here and then you can apply it as we go through. Which one are you? Are you developing an understanding of biblical truth? Yes, you're spiritually mature. No, you're you're struggling with basics of biblical truth. You're spiritually immature. Spiritually mature people critique themselves from Scripture. Spiritually immature criticize others by false comparison. Spiritually mature people seek unity. Spiritually immature people promote discord. Spiritually mature individuals desire spiritual challenges. The spiritually immature desire entertainment. The spiritually mature study and observe the scriptures. The spiritually immature accept opinions and half-truths. The spiritually mature exhibit active faith, whereas the spiritually immature exhibit apathy. The spiritually mature live with confidence while the spiritually immature live with fear. And finally, the spiritually mature evaluate their experiences in light of God's Word, whereas the spiritually immature evaluate their experiences according to their feelings. So I'll ask again, believer, is that you? Do you have an understanding of biblical truth? Are you critiquing yourself from Scripture? Are you seeking unity? Do you desire spiritual challenges? Are you studying and observing the Scriptures? Are you exhibiting active faith? Are you living with confidence? Are you evaluating your experiences in light of God's Word? If you're saying yes, 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 and yes, well then guess what? You are spiritually mature. But if you're struggling with the basics of biblical truth, if you're guilty of criticizing others, if you're constantly promoting discord, if you desire entertainment over truth, if you accept others' opinions and half-truths, if you exhibit apathy, live with fear, or evaluate your experiences based on your own feelings, then guess what? You're spiritually immature. You need to go back and start getting on some milk, the milk of God's Word. You need to start some exercise in the Word. And you need to work yourself back up to the solid food or the meat of God's Word.
You see, let me summarize here that spiritual maturity is not a matter of how long you've been saved. Rather, it's a matter of your attitude for and in the Word of God. Spiritual maturity requires practice and being trained in handling the Scripture. That word practice there, Hebrews 5, refers to systematic training via multiple repetitions. And the word trained there refers to being conditioned or disciplined by training. Spiritual maturity requires disciplined exercise and training in the things of God. Believers, we must pursue our priority to feed on God's Word, even in times of pressure. Start drinking the milk and chewing on the meat of God's Word. Secondly, we can pursue our priorities under pressure by sacrificing and praising God as living stones. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10. through 10. Now this section is filled with many allusions and quotes from the Old Testament. And as such, it's necessary to go back and examine those texts in their context so that proper application can be made. Verse 4, And coming to him, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The participle coming to him in verse 4 is an allusion to the Septuagint translation of Psalm 34 verse 5, draw near to him and be enlightened. To him, in both Psalm 34, 5 and 1 Peter 2, 4, refer to Jesus. Coming to, or drawing near to him, does not refer to coming to Jesus for salvation. The tense and voice of the participle indicates that believers are approaching Christ to be in fellowship with him. Thus, Peter is saying that believers are fellowshipping with Christ as the living stone. Peter depicts Christ as the living stone. The stone is living indicates that the stone is definitely a person. In John 4 and John 6, Jesus was the living water and the living bread. Peter confessed that Jesus is the son of the living God. That he is living demonstrates that he is the giver of life. The term stone, lithos, refers to a stone that's been hewed or chiseled into a definite shape for a particular purpose. One such purpose of a chiseled stone or a hewn stone is for judgment. In Daniel 2.45, I saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. In Daniel 2.25, this stone, which is Christ, 
when he returns, is going to crush or destroy the kingdoms of this world. A second purpose for this stone is in the construction of a building. As Peter says, this building is a spiritual house. The chief cornerstone of this spiritual house is Christ, as foretold in Isaiah 28, 16, which Peter quotes in verse 6. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Here the term cornerstone refers to the stone that controls and defines the foundational lines of the building. The foundation of this building, according to Ephesians 2.20, is composed of apostles and prophets. It is because we have fellowship with the living stones that we are living stones, plural. That is, we have become partakers of Christ's nature. As living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house. Being built up in the present tense passive voice indicates that God is continuously placing believers into this spiritual house. As individuals come in repentance and faith, they are being added into this spiritual house that's built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets of which Christ is the cornerstone. The metaphor of a spiritual house pictures believers as the temple of God in which the Holy Spirit dwells. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Ephesians 2.21-22 In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Peter goes on to say, quoting Isaiah 28.16, that Christ the cornerstone is choice and precious in the sight of God. That Christ is choice means that he is select. That he is precious means that Christ has great worth. The Father selected Christ to be the chief cornerstone of this spiritual house called the church. And because he is the chief cornerstone, this spiritual house finds rest and stability, making him precious to believers. Peter goes on to quote Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected. He states that the living stone has been rejected by men, that is, to be considered unfit. Now, using the analogy of viewing or chiseling stones, those stones that did not pass inspection were rejected by the builders. The psalmist figuratively used these builders who rejected the stones to represent unbelievers. Christ applied the psalm to himself when confronting the religious rulers. In Matthew 21, 42, he said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. Peter also referred to Psalm 118, 22 and the rejection of Christ when addressing the Sanhedrin, Acts 4, 11. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which, but which became the chief cornerstone. To those who reject Christ or deem him unfit as Messiah, Peter quotes Isaiah 8:14. He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. If you reject Christ, he is first a stone of stumbling. This is a stone by which someone actually accidentally trips upon and injures themselves. Second, if you reject Christ, he is a rock of offense. This rock refers to a trap that when tripped, causes a large boulder to fall upon the victim, killing them. 
Therefore, if you reject Christ as the Messiah, you bring injury and destruction upon yourself. According to verse 8, the means of stumbling or tripping the trap is that these ones are disobedient to the word. The word or declaration to which they were disobedient was the command to repent and believe. And that kind of disobedience comes from a heart of unbelief. To this doom they were also appointed means that you who are disobedient, you who refuse to repent and believe, God dooms you to stumble into eternal destruction in the lake of fire. Now on the other hand, in contrast to those who stumble, are the occupants of the spiritual house. That's us as believers. The living stones. And here Peter uses the Old Testament to give us a fourfold designation. He says that the living stones are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. First, the church, i.e. believers, the living stones, like Israel, is a chosen race. This is borrowed from Isaiah 43, verse 20. Uh, he goes on to say, Isaiah says, to give drink to my chosen race or my chosen people. Now the term race here, genos, refers to a group of people belonging to the same nation. Uh, it would be better to translate the phrase chosen race as chosen people. Uh, the term chosen means to select or to choose. And this goes back to God's choice or election uh, of a group or a nation, not of isolated individuals. We previously have seen in 1 Peter that God chose the nation of Israel, the Levitical priesthood, the holy angels, and the church. So first of all, the church, us, the living stones, we are a chosen people. Second, we are, like Israel, a royal priesthood. Now the term priesthood that's used here, hiratuma, is only used twice in the New Testament, and both times here in 1 Peter 2.5 and 2.9. In the Septuagint, this same Greek term for priesthood, hiratuma, is also used only twice, and that's in Exodus 19.6 and Exodus 23.22, where it says, Ye shall be to me a kingdom of priests, or literally a royal priesthood. In the context of Exodus, Israel was called a kingdom of priests, or a royal priesthood. Now, as church-age believers, we are part of Christ's priesthood. Revelation 1.6, he's made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. Revelation 5.10, he has made us to be a kingdom and a priest to our God, and we will reign on the earth. Revelation 20 and verse 6 says that we will be priest of God and of Christ and reign with him. Now, back in verse 5 of 1 Peter 2, this priesthood of which we're part is holy, meaning that we can enter the heavenly temple. As well, this priesthood of believers is royal. We're a royal priesthood because our high priest Jesus is also king. Zechariah 6.13 Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit on and, and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now under the Levitical priesthood, a man could only serve as priest and never as king. However, Christ's priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek, who served as both priest and king. 
As Hebrews 5, 6, quoting the book of Psalms says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Third, the church, us as believers, the living stones, like Israel, is a holy nation. This designation comes from Exodus 19, 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The term nation, ethnos, denotes a people group based on shared laws, shared culture, or geographical ties. Though not a nation in the geographical sense, the church is a nation from the standpoint of shared laws, namely God's law. Additionally, 1 Corinthians 10.32 designates there are three groups of people according to shared culture, Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. Now Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 32.21 that God would make Israel jealous with those who are not a people and provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Hosea gave a similar prophecy in 2.3, I will also have compassion on her who have not obtained compassion, and I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. Now Paul quoted and applied both of these prophecies to the church in Romans 9 and 10. Peter quotes Hosea 2.3 in chapter 2 verse 10 to claim that the church is the nation the holy nation, the people, that God has raised up to provoke Israel to jealousy. So when people say there's no prophecies of the church in the Old Testament, that's not true. It's right there in Deuteronomy 32:21, And again in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 3. Fourth, the church, us believers as living stones like Israel, are a people for God's own possession. This is borrowed from Exodus 19.5. You shall be my own possession among all the people. Remember, when God purchased Israel and brought them out of Egypt, He commanded them to be distinct from the other nations around them. Being a people for God's own possession, we were purchased by Christ's blood, and as such are to be holy. That is, we're to live differently amid the culture that we live. We are to separate ourselves from the evil ideas and practices of society. Now before we move on, I'd like to say here that these designations belonging to both Israel and the church does not mean that we have replaced Israel. As Moses and Hosea prophesied, Israel, because of her disobedience, is for a period not God's people. However, in the future, when Christ returns, Jewish people will be redeemed and regathered as a new nation of Israel they will once again become God's people. God did not intend to replace Israel with the church, but the function of the church, according to Moses' prophecy, is to make Israel jealous and provoke them to anger that they might return to God. Now, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession for two reasons. According to 1 Peter 2, 5, the first reason is to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That they're acceptable to God through Christ underscores His ministry as our high priest. The sacrifices that are required to offer are to be spiritual. That is, we're to offer them according to the will of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, understand here that the sacrifices offered in the Old Testament era are unable to be completed because they're dependent upon being offered at the temple by the Levitical priesthood. This does not mean, however, that God does not expect His people to offer sacrifices. Hebrews 13, 15-16, Through Him then let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. We are commanded to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 which is our spiritual service of worship. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were dead animals. But since Jesus has redeemed us, He now requires a living sacrifice of our body. This sacrifice is the offer of ourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. Romans 6, 13. Offering our life sacrificially to the Lord is our spiritual service. And that word spiritual service there in Romans 12 Verse 1 refers to serving as a priest. As believers, we are commanded to offer up the sacrifice of praise to God, Hebrews 13, 15. That is the fruit of lips. This is a continuation in principle of the peace or fellowship offering found in Leviticus 7, 11, and 12. We're to offer the sacrifice of peace if he offers it by way of thanksgiving. The principle behind the fellowship offering is a sacrifice of praise. God foretold in Psalm 50, 12 to 14 and 23 that the blood of bulls and goats would not always please him, but the sacrifice of praise would always please him. Also note the fruit of the lips in Hebrews 13, 15 is a quote from Isaiah, Hosea 14, 3, which says, Say to him, take away all iniquity, receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. The fruit of the lips defines the motivation for the sacrifice of praise, the removal of iniquity, of sin. Because our sin has been forgiven, we're to offer a sacrifice of praise to God. Someone says, I don't know what to praise God for. Are your sins forgiven? You got something to praise God for. Believers are also commanded to offer the sacrifices of doing good and sharing. Notice in verse 16 of Hebrews 13, neglect, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Doing good and sharing means sharing the essentials of life with those who lack and are unable to work for them. This may include emotional, financial, or physical needs. James 2, 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, one of you says, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? 1 John three seventeen. Whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need, closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? This is what Paul referred to in Philippians four eighteen. He says that he's received everything in full and have abundance, supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul referred to the Philippians' gift as an acceptable sacrifice that was pleasing to God. He also referred to it as a fragrant aroma, which is a reference to the burnt offering of the Old Testament era, Exodus 29:18. In that sense, the sacrifice of doing good and sharing is a continuation in principle of the burnt offering. 
And the principle behind that is to show one's devotion to God. So when we sacrifice by doing good and sharing uh, what we have with others, we are displaying our devotion to God. The second reason that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possessions, according to verse 9, is to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is an allusion to Isaiah 43, 21. The people who I formed for myself will declare my praise. Here he says proclaim, means to make known openly and broadly. The subject of this proclamation is the excellencies of God. That term excellencies is used only four times in the Greek New Testament, three of those four times by Peter himself. In 2 Peter 1, 3, and 5. Now the Greek term for excellence, arete, is translated as praise in the Septuagint in Isaiah 43, 21. Thus, excellencies convey the idea of praise for all of God's attributes. That is, you and I are to be openly and broadly praising God for His virtues, His deeds, powers, glory, wisdom, grace, mercy, love, and holiness. Just as God called Israel to praise Him, He now calls you and I to praise Him. And praising God happens when we proclaim that God has called us out of darkness, that is the kingdom of Satan, into his marvelous light, the kingdom of God. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. As Thomas R. Schreiner states, the declaration of God's praises includes both worship and evangelism, spreading the good news of God's saving wonders to all peoples. Friends, in times of pressure, we must pursue our God-given priorities. Being scattered or suffering does not release us from our priorities. Whether the pressure comes from peers or politicians, from radicals or rabble-rousers, we must pursue our priorities. As citizens of a heavenly kingdom and pilgrims in a foreign land, we must not allow outside influences to determine our priorities. Believer, you need to ask yourself, are you feeding on the milk and meat of God's word? Or are rather you feeding yourself on the vain philosophies of this world? Believer, ask yourself, are you sacrificing yourself to God? Or are you sacrificing yourself on the altar of worldly conveniences and pleasures? Finally, believer, you need to ask yourself whether you're proclaiming God's praise to those in darkness or simply promoting your own self-interest. Father in heaven, I thank you for the word that you've given to us. I thank you, Father, for setting our priorities straight, reminding us, Father, that our priorities are to, like newborn babes, feed on the pure milk of God's word, your word, and that, Father, as living stones, we are to be sacrificing and praising you. Father, there's all kinds of pressure out there. We feel pressure all around us. Lord, don't let that pressure cause us to give up our priorities. But rather, may it be that pressure that pushes us back to our priorities, that draws us back to your word, that draws us back to making sacrifices.
that draws us back to giving praise to you. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.